What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm glad you joined me. My name is Evan Brand. If you're not familiar, I have tons of episodes. We're up to, I don't know what it is now, 93, 94, coming up on 100 episodes of this show. So if you're wanting to hear diet stuff, I have plenty of it. And I'm going to be having more soon. I haven't talked about it because I wanted to make sure that it was going to happen before I jinxed it. But as you know, Nora Goodgaudis, she's one of my good friends and mentors, and she's been a huge proponent of me improving myself. And, you know, she is an NTP, nutritional therapy practitioner, and then she does neurofeedback. And uh, I've been talking to her about it, and I've gone through with the NTP program. So I'm starting as we speak right now. So there's a ton of coursework, but by this time next year, I'll be able to call myself an NTP and have those letters next to my name, just like Nora and uh, Liz Wolf of Balanced Bite. So that'll be pretty cool. I'm super excited. It's going to be a lot of refresher information, I'm sure, but tons of new information anyway. So I'm going to be changing up the style of the show a little bit and kind of making it a little bit more educational, less conversational here in the next few weeks and next couple months. So uh, leave a review for the show on iTunes when you get a chance and thanks for tuning in and I look forward to the future with you guys. Here we go. Well, let's do it. All right. We're here with Dr. Michael Gunson, who is the manager of the global change in energy program and the project scientist for the OCO2, the orbiting carbon observatory. His research interests are focused on the physical and chemical processes of Earth's atmosphere using space-based instruments. Michael, thanks for coming on to the show. You're welcome. So, How are you? Oh, I'm great, man. This is, this is exciting. I've been into astronomy, and in, in school, that was always my favorite topic of discussion, is space and the atmosphere and everything like that. So I'm pumped to get to talk with you. Great stuff. Yeah. So... This OCO2, this is a satellite that's in space currently right now. Yes, we were uh, fortunate and very delighted to have a successful launch of the, we call it an observatory just because it's a, an instrument inside a, inside a satellite. And we were successful in launching the observatory on July the 2nd, uh, 2.56 in the morning, out at uh, the Vandenberg Air Force Base in Southern California. I was out there, and anecdotally, we all trooped out to watch the launch, and we didn't see a thing because it was such a thick marine layer. It was almost drizzling at 2.56 in the morning. So I caught it on uh, NASA TV after the fact, going back to the hotel, watching it on, uh, on my iPhone. That's funny. That's like the Super Bowl. You get a better view from the, the seat of your home yeah. now than being there. That's, that's, that's so true in this case. Wow, that's interesting. So you, you always hear about satellites, satellite radio, satellite TV. How many satellites are orbiting the planet? Oh, the actual number, I don't actually know, but uh, to put context on what it's likely to be is that NASA now has uh, 18 uh, satellites orbiting the Earth, studying the Earth right now. OCO2 became the 18th. Uh, if you add in the commercial sector, which has boomed in the past decade, which puts into space telecommunication satellites, and you look at the burgeoning space program in China, as well as the existing European and Russian satellite programs, we're probably talking uh, hundreds. In actual fact, one of the challenges now 
of operating uh, satellites is you have to take care of what we call conjunctions. And these are events where something unexpectedly gets close to your satellite and you have to evade. So uh, the folks at NORAD with radar track hundreds of objects in, in orbit around the world. And it's and, and every, more frequently now, like almost once every couple of weeks, we have to take action to avoid some close conjunctions, they're called. Holy crap, there's space traffic. Yes. Uh, the other word that's used by my colleagues, there's space junk. Wow. <laughs> so I, 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 I will freely admit I have not seen the film Gravity. However, the idea that something can hit a satellite is, is now becoming uh, a, a much more frequent event and something we have to take real care of. So it's busy up there, real busy up there. That's incredible. I mean, is there a limit to how much stuff we can put out there? I guess because I saw that you can, you basically, the OCO2 satellite, that you had to like position it in between a couple other satellites. I mean, is there a limit? Um, I don't think there is a limit. It's more the fact that we never, not everybody has taken good care to deorbit something when it's when it's planned for end of life. So that means having an actual plan to take it out of space. So it's just congested. And remember, you're moving at uh, a few kilometers per second up there you know, to when you're in orbit. You're moving really fast. So close distances are measured in kilometers, not a few feet, for example. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's busy up there, but I, I think it's manageable and there's plenty of room. It's just that we get caught out with people who are not taking care of what they put up and then the, after, the aftermath of when they stop operating. Right. Wow. So the OCO2, it caught my interest just because I've been studying the atmosphere for a while myself in and out of college. And it makes me kind of curious. You know, we see a lot of the methane levels and the carbon dioxide levels, and it's really scary stuff. Is that the main idea behind this, is to figure out what is actually going on in, in terms of the atmosphere? Uh, so you, you've mentioned two very important greenhouse gases that have, are, are heavily influenced by human activity. Uh, the most important greenhouse gas in terms of its uh, effect is water vapor. But water vapor is regulated, comes into equilibrium based on uh, the balance of temperature with how much is in the atmosphere. But we're putting into the atmosphere uh, two very potent greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane. There are a number of others, but they're the two big actors on the stage of climate change. And whilst we know that we're injecting these gases into the atmosphere, in the case of carbon dioxide, what's quite remarkable is that we know uh, a little less about its fate uh, in terms of where around the world is a large fraction, 50%, of what we put into the atmosphere, where is it going to, why is it being absorbed, either by the ocean or, or on the land. So the big uncertainties about the carbon cycle right now and its impact on climate change, the first one, which isn't, is, isn't really a science question, is how much is, are we as human beings going to put in the atmosphere? So how much coal, oil, natural gas are we going to burn? And over the past, uh, ever since the Industrial Revolution, 
the trend of how much carbon dioxide in gigatons that we put in the atmosphere has steadily increased. And as the developing world modernizes, China, India, they're consuming more fossil fuels to provide power, to provide transport, to actually run their industries. So what we're seeing is a steady increase, even though the developed world, the United States, Europe, have actually per capita and in total kind of leveling off, uh, it, it's the rest of the world is emerging and, and growing their economies. And so our consumption and appetite to put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing. But that's a socioeconomic issue in the sense that what happens in the future is going to be turned by, by decisions on in so, in social and economic issues. The big science question and the, the second big uncertainty on what will happen in the future is the fate of those greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the fate of carbon dioxide. What we can't see on the ground, although we've got a number of very, very important measurements that are made by uh, NOAA, for example, uh, in fairly isolated regions around the world, uh, are the trend in carbon dioxide, but they're very few. There's something like maybe 70 to 100 points around the world where we make a measurement of the concentration of these two gases, something like once a week. But that doesn't tell us what's happening locally because you can imagine if I'm sat in a cornfield in the Midwest of the United States in the growing season, that corn sucks in carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as it grows up. Every, you know, all the... Uh, cellulose and glucose that that plant produces comes from somewhere. It comes from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it sucks it in. So we know that plants in different regions are sucking in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis and growth. But those plants are also respiring. You know, there's the typical consumption of glucose that we as human beings go through, animals go through for energy is creating carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, and putting it back in the atmosphere. And those in the natural system, in, in plants around the world, the, the average is in close balance. And it's the amount drawn in is way more than we ever put in the atmosphere, but it's balanced by what plants put out again. So the two are huge numbers, the difference of which is a very small number, that is actually now that difference, like, two gigatons per year, is, uh, uh, is dwarfed by the 10 gigatons we're putting in without remission, i.e. we're not drawing it back out again. Makes sense. So the oceans play an equivalent role. There, it's, uh, and I made this point the other day, it's the role of biology versus physics, physical processes. But cold water will tend to absorb carbon dioxide. You can dissolve carbon dioxide in it. And I often use my soda analogy if anybody's stuck on this. But if you warm that water up, it will tend to come back out of solution again. So you have the, roughly the same big picture image of the cold ocean around Antarctica in the northern Pacifics and then in the North Atlantic are thought to be overall a sink of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere drawing it in. But then the warmer waters are sources because it's coming out of solution again. So the ocean, again, has this massive drawdown and release, but they're in very close balance. 
So you've got two big numbers, the difference of which is pretty small, dwarfing, you know, dwarfed by the amount that we put in the atmosphere in, in burning fossil fuels. But we don't know the relative importance of the ocean's processes versus the land processes. And the fate of the whether those processes continue to act as they do today in the future is what's going to determine whether carbon dioxide levels will rise really rapidly because we're burning more fuels or whether we can expect this continued absorption of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to be sustained through the future. Does that make sense? It's just yeah. a... It seems like the first answer is probably what's going to happen more rather than it's it keep up. It just seems impossible to keep up. Uh, so I've, I've often made that a very good point, actually. What's most remarkable is that for a hundred more years of increasing amounts of carbon dioxide being put in the atmosphere by human beings, the, the natural system has, on average, managed to absorb about 50% of it, no matter how much we put in. So that's really remarkable. It's like we keep turning up the host pipe but we still man- the system still manages to pull 50% out. That's, that's staggering. But the other point that you made is, is really the heart of the challenge, shall I say, it is will that change? Will, will it only be 25% that's captured? Because we know that in drought conditions, plants are not effective at growing. They're going to shut down. They're not going to grow. So if we have a drought in, say, the Amazon region, does the Amazon become go from being a net sink of drawing out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, or does the Amazon become a net source of carbon dioxide going back in the atmosphere? And until OCO2, and hopefully the science that will be done with the data that we'll capture, there was almost a, a publication every year from a research group saying, the Amazon is a net source. The Amazon is a net sink. And that's where we use those two terms. And they were arguing, some would argue that drought or mortality of trees or uh, deforestation would change the balance of the role of the Amazon versus, no, 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 regrowth of young plants after forest clearing is so vigorous, it's actually a net sink, a pull down of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. To get a handle on that and understand these issues of, you know, what's the role of the Amazon? What's the role of agriculture in the Midwest? What's happening in equatorial Africa? The northern needle pine forests in Asia. You need measurements of carbon dioxide almost globally, not at just a few points. So this is where a satellite measurement gives you the reach to get measurements uh, around the world, so you can look at the the changes that are occurring on a regional basis, on you know, not just at that point where you're located. So, when this satellite is orbiting, is it taking levels of atmospheric conditions down on the ground, or does like so? Say if you know you're you're flying over the Amazon, are you picking up on the air several miles up, or are you picking up on the air down by the <clears> ground? It's a very good point. Um, so the, there's, if, if I may, there's two little parts to the answer to this. The first is what you've touched on is really important, is that once carbon dioxide is mixing into the atmosphere, there is no chemical process which uh, reacts with carbon dioxide to remove it. 
The only way that carbon dioxide is lost from the atmosphere is by colliding with something at the surface, such as a plant, and being absorbed through little stomata and becoming part of photosynthesis, or it's absorbed into water. So the, only, the action is all at the surface. By the time you look at carbon dioxide levels uh, a, a couple of kilometers, a few miles above the surface, the wind and all those kind of things have mixed it all up and you've lost any trace of what happened at the surface. So you can be in the middle of a cornfield, to go back to my other example, and you will see dramatic changes in carbon dioxide because you're right there where the action is. But if you go a few meters, a kilometer, a mile, whatever distance above that cornfield, the wind has lost that signal for you. So if you want to understand what the cornfield's doing, and you're not actually in the cornfield, you need to make a measurement that gives you access to that change near the surface. So that was part one of my more complicated response. So the way we do this is we, we my colleagues came up, I, I, was, I remember the first discussions. We can, look at the, we can look at the absorption of carbon dioxide by sunlight. So the reason why carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas is it will absorb light at different wavelengths. And some of the wavelengths include those in the visible near-infrared part of the sun spectrum. So what we do is look at reflected sunlight. So as the light from the sun passes through the atmosphere, hits the surface of the Earth and is reflected back to space, we capture some of that and we look for the amount of light absorbed by the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Because most of the carbon dioxide is near the surface anyway, that's where the pressure's highest, that's where most of the gas in the world is, the signal reflects what's going on nearer the surface than up in the middle atmosphere. So by using reflected sunlight, we have a method which gives us the best indication of what's happening at the surface, but with reach to go around and do this around the world. Now, you think about the logic of what I've just explained, there's a wrinkle. We can't see light through clouds. So the world turns out to be very cloudy. It's a water world after all. So in actual fact, part of our challenge in designing the experiment was to actually uh, not only look at the reflected sunlight, but we had to put in uh, a, a measurement which told us about oxygen because we know how much oxygen's in the atmosphere. And when the amount of sunlight absorbed by oxygen doesn't match what you know you should have seen if it had gone all the way geometrically to the earth, surface of the Earth and back to the satellite, you know you're looking at a cloud. So we, we, the, the nuance here is that we're actually looking for that 20% of the time when you're looking through directly at the Earth's surface through no clouds. The, the, the Earth turns out to be 70% cloudy uh, on average. And so we're orbiting. You don't get to measure all the time. Well, you don't get to measure carbon dioxide at the surface all the time. You have to find those times when you can look straight at the ground and back up to the satellite. That is, that's amazing. It's like you're just sitting there waiting for sunlight or clear skies, basically, to snap a snapshot, basically. That's right. We get... Um, we. Clouds are, most of the time, they come in all sizes at the bottom line. You know, and there's some regions of the world where the clouds are just a big bank of solid clouds everywhere. 
But typically, if you get into the partly cloudy regions, clouds can be quite small, and you need distances or uh, regions where there's about on the order of a mile between clouds. Those are the occasions where we're, we're able to see the ground. And so we designed the instrument to look in, in small sections of about a mile across. And so we, and the way this works is we, we actually take more than a million samples a day. And we have to, we have to process that, those samples and identify those which are clearest, i.e. there's no cloud in. And it turns out that we'll make a, we can start answering science questions if we can find on the order of 6% of those which are really cloud-free. They give us the best, most accurate measurement of the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, uh, and there's a little segue there to yet another challenge for the experiment. <laughs> but Wow. So uh, is, this, is this information, is it eventually going to be available on a map to where you can just, or like some sort of integration with Google Earth to where the average person from the public can view the real sinks and the sources of carbon dioxide, or is that going to be like top secret? Oh, no, it won't be top secret. Um, everything we do in NASA is, and, and it's my personal philosophy, I, is that we publish is the word we use, but we, we disseminate the data through data centers as, as soon as we feel it's got any scientific use. And I'm committed uh, for the project to release data. In fact, our first data release of the actual so, the imprint of, of what is happening to the sunlight, the spectra, will happen in November. And then I'll start releasing uh, what we've discerned about changes in carbon dioxide concentrations, the actual what we call the CO2 measurement in February. So we'll get that out as quickly as possible because you can't – the changes in carbon dioxide are very difficult to interpret about what's happening at the surface. You, there's a whole layer of interpretation through modeling which will happen in the research community at large, not just by the uh, – as on OCO2. And so the, the kind of things that you're talking about need to be developed and, and a lot of analysis and research done by that community. But I have to say, we've talked quite extensively about how do we engage people on what we're finding? How do we create something that's uh, meaningful in terms of putting stuff on a Google map, Google Earth map? Uh, how do we present the information and in our findings? And it, 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 it has its own challenges, shall I say. Geeky scientists, bless our cotton socks, tend to be not necessarily all great communicators and realizing what it means to to everybody to understand exactly what we found so it, it that's a that's a parallel challenge of life going on to to turn this into something that's actionable or interesting to people uh, but my first my first order job of the day is always since we're only about 5 or 6 weeks on orbit is making sure everything's working getting the first data, calibrating it, and making sure it really does make sense. I can cross those bridges in the coming months ahead. Right. Yeah, you hit on my next question. I was going to ask, what should the the average person that knows about this project, and now they're hearing about it from the man himself, are there any actionable things that we should be thinking, that we should be doing? I mean, how does the public play a role in 
I don't know if you want to call it just planetary health, atmospheric health, whatever. How do we feel like we're contributing and not just hearing this information like, holy crap, we hope they figure it out? I, that's a really challenging question uh, because you, you, you go from the science of what we're doing, which is um, to what should our response be? And that's much bigger collective decision than anything. Uh, so I, I just have to reinforce my first and most important job, I think, is to provide the best possible scientific knowledge and information that can then lead to somebody making a decision about the action they want to take. Um, it's a very touchy subject about what we can do personally on any of these issues. And uh, in another life, I go home. I live in California in the midst of drought, and I'm super conservative about my water use. I'm, you know, and in that parallel, um, we can, as individuals, take personal action we feel comfortable with on whether we change our carbon footprint, for example. And uh, it's it's thinking through uh, what actions we can take and. Sorry, I'm going to tangentially go. I, I, I had worked with a, a, a middle school teacher for a, uh, a week on bringing science to elementary school teachers. And she had a great part. You can't talk about climate change. She said, Mike, don't do that because you'll get everybody depressed. And she said, the most important thing you can do is give people what action they can take. So my personal recommendation on any of this is you take baby steps. So it's making a decision not to do one small thing, like don't make five trips to the store. If you're driving, try and make four trips to the store. You, you, you know, otherwise, the problem is too overwhelming. And uh, so my personal recommendation when I give this kind of a talk is – Take baby steps, do one small thing better every week that reduces, and it's true about water, it's true about your carbon footprint, it's one baby step at a time. Otherwise, it's like dieting. I'm overweight, I know that, my doctor just slapped me around the head again. But asking me to starve for five days doesn't do it. It's, it's how you manage every meal to be that bit smaller so that you're not as hungry and you're, still, you're not starving to death. Because you'll, you'll binge again if you, if, you, if you try and starve yourself for five days. And it's true in anything we do, in my humble opinion. And that's water use. It's, it's our carbon footprint. It's all of the above. Well, hey, if you want to spend time talking with me about the atmosphere, I'll spend time talking with you about food. That's my main thing. I guarantee I could get you to lose X amount of pounds or whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ah, yes. It's clearly a deal, Evan. It's clearly a deal. All right. That sounds fine to me. So what else What else are you up to? I mean, I know this OCO2 stuff's exciting, but, I mean, I, I just I want to get into maybe, I don't know, the history of NASA. I mean, let's just have a conversation about it. You've got a crazy and pretty awesome job. Right. I, I, I'm very fortunate. I've been at JPL now for 27 years. What is? Tell people what that is. Uh, so uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab is uh, it's got a, a wonderful history. Uh, we've, we are now today, uh, one of 10 NASA centers around the nation. Uh, we're different than everybody else. All the other nine, the other nine are, uh, manned or staffed by government civil servants. We are still a division of Caltech, California Institute of Technology. 
And historically, um, back in the 1930s, um, down at the campus in Pasadena in Southern California, at the Caltech campus, uh, this was in the days of, of early rocket experimentation. And the campus fellows there got a little bit out of control in downtown Pasadena. And they were told to go take their experiments to what was then a more remote part of the city, which is the Arroyo Seco. In fact, just from where I am, we're within spitting distance almost of the Rose Bowl, which most people know about because that's where UCLA play their home football games. And it's the host of other big, big sporting events. And from there in the 1930s, of course, the advent of the Second World War put a lot more emphasis on how rocketry was used for military applications, how it became part of developing systems to deliver tactical nuclear weapons or other just ordinary warheads in the battlefield setting. Um, we, JPL, um, became... Uh, funded to continue that kind of development research during the Second World War. But in the 1950s, we, we, the attention turned from developing rockets and more involvement in uh, military uh, munitions. Um, no, I don't think we've ever actually been involved in the munitions themselves. To be, uh, I absolutely know that for a fact. Um, but we started to become part of what would the U.S. space program be before NASA was ever invented. And in 1957, in October, Russia launched the very first human satellite, Sputnik 1. I was all of maybe a month old at the time. And the, um, the race was on for the U.S. to catch up. And at that time each of the arms of the armed services had rocket development programs. And Werner von Braun in uh, Alabama at the Redstone Arsenal had developed a system for the Army. And there was competing systems being developed for the Navy as well. But uh, the Navy failed to get their system to work in late 1957, I think it was. But in conjunction with Caltech and JPL, uh, very quietly, we developed what became the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1. And it was launched on January 31st, 8 o'clock in the evening, in 1958. And Explorer 1 became the very first U.S. Uh, space probe. It was the first Earth science probe as well, because it was developed uh, a particle counter working with Paul, Paul Van Allen, we discovered the Van Allen radiation belts. So basically, Earth's magnetic field zero, you know, uh, ensures that we're not bombarded with uh, particles at the Earth's surface, unlike Mars. And that was the first discovery. And uh, from there, later that year, NASA was formed in late 1958. And it was decided that JPL would be one of the 10 NASA centers. And... Uh, from there, we at JPL have had a history of being involved in the space exploration. Almost anything you, the, that's been released to, uh, that tells you about any of the other planets in the solar system, if you've seen an image, it's come from a probe that NASA and JPL have built or developed and, and launched. And currently, 
uh, we're probably Cassini uh, around Saturn uh, is still very active, uh, but the Mars rovers um, from the little tiny ro- rover Sojourner that got there in July 4th, or was it? I bet it's 1996 or something even, I forget the exact year, to what is now the Mars Science Lab Curiosity, which is like the size of a mini, mini Cupid. It's huge. That's, that's what's like roving around Mars today. And that's what we've been for. But I came on board, back to me. <laughs> I came on board when um, the big questions in, in the atmosphere and Earth science back in the 1980s we're all about the ozone layer. And there, that, that created an interest in what is the composition of the atmosphere in detail. And um, it, it, a number of things added up to make an interesting story. We knew that ozone was being depleted. And the question was why? And uh, the ozone hole over Antarctica had been discovered that occurs every spring. And... Um, the interest was, do we understand the chemistry that's going on in the ozone layer in the stratosphere? And it turns out, looking back, it was from a, from a satellite perspective, and I was involved in a shuttle experiment which actually measured the composition of the atmosphere in detail. It turns out to be a quite tractable problem. There's about 40 to 50 gases which are important even down to the isotope variations. The range of chemical reactions is measured in tens to maybe a hundred. And we, over a period of maybe 10 years, I think the community answered all the big questions. It was all about the chlorine that was in the chlorofluorocarbons being being broken off when those chlorofluorocarbon CFCs, which are inert at the surface, they hit heavy sunlight and that chlorine breaks off. The chlorine is very reactive and catalyzes the destruction of ozone. That was the bottom line. And that led to the decision by everyone to stop or limit production of CFCs and look at alternatives. And um, NASA played a role in that. But then I, I, my personal history, I, I went on to look at work on uh, the next generation of weather sounder the airs instrument, and then after that uh, on a new instrument to study air quality, the TESS instrument. Um, and then obviously I segue to OCO2, but that's kind of my, you know, I've been involved in a lot of how, how do you study the Earth's atmosphere from space? And it turns out the atmosphere is a little easier to study than, say, the ocean. The ocean is, uh, you can see the surface, but all the actions below the surface. So how do you study? The, well, there's a long, complicated answer to all that. We can. is both the bottom line. But in the past few years, my other job, that global change and energy manager job, has been a reaction to. Um, and I'm, I'm. I don't want to get into trouble with my colleagues by saying that climate change is is not important. I think what we know about climate change, um, about the future, may be a little uncertain, mainly because we don't know how much CO2 and other greenhouse gases are going to be present. But we know it's happening. Our, um, 
Svante Arrhenius wrote the first paper in 1896 saying that doubling carbon dioxide would lead to a, a temperature change of this much. That was more than 100 years ago, guys. And our ability to answer that question has only got better because we've got better technology. We've got lots of computers now. So the question that we feel um, is how do we take what we know, our capabilities, and make more information available for people to do, make better decisions about water availability. Uh, we started work recently on what we can do about crop health, agricultural applications, food security. So my other day job is looking at what my colleagues know and can do from space or aircraft to help with these changing questions, the, the response to climate change changing water availability, changing food security. Yeah, you made me think of a couple questions. So when they took out the CFCs, I was reading the other day about the new form of the fluorocarbons, the hydrofluorocarbons that have come from air conditioning and the R134 coolant that's in all of our air conditioners. And I didn't even know that that still is 100 times more potent than something like carbon dioxide. That's right. So is there any effort to try to get rid of that? Because we talk about, oh, you know, the Montreal Protocol, you know, that banned all the CFCs. But now we have the hydrofluorocarbons that are just as bad, if not worse, coming from all the air conditioners when we use them, right? Uh, so it's a storyline which I've, I, I occasionally go back to is the fact that, just in my own research and reading, that the – there are a lot of replacements and uh, that were not regulated by the Montreal Protocol. And it turns out that the properties you need in chlorofluorocarbons to act as coolants and refrigerants, etc., um, the replacements have this, can have those properties, but they share the difficult property of being greenhouse gases and very potent ones. So... Um, Invariably, there's no big scientific meeting uh, that I, I go to that does not include researchers who are pointing out that they've managed to detect the presence in the atmosphere, usually in not in parts per million, like we, you know, one molecule in a hundred, uh, in a million, sorry, or one molecule in a billion, but one molecule in a trillion level of some new gas, which is effectively a new coolant replacement or a refrigerant or something like that. I think generally my observation is that we seem to be better globally on reducing fugitive emissions, i.e. accidental release of these gases. But it is not to say that you can keep on top of all of these. And there are certainly true that there's plenty of evidence of um, um, buildup of some of these gases in the atmosphere, which are very potent greenhouse gases, they have very long lifetimes, so it's not like they go in the atmosphere, react, and disappear. They're in the atmosphere, and they sit in the atmosphere for quite some time, and that's troubling. That, that's troubling. It is, yeah. So when you're using things like air conditioners, I mean, I haven't read extensively on it, but the way I f- the way I understand it is when you use air conditioners and in your car, in your home, and refrigerators just the simple use of that, you produce those or they kind of leak out? Or if it's, it's a... The, it's, usually physical, it's usually physical leaks in the system. Okay. 
So basically, so, no, it's just no. like it's basically like everybody having a loaded gun in their car in their house, and then if you you know, it's almost impossible to completely close and isolate those cooling systems. So you know, we always call out the guy who, if you need air conditioning, which you pretty much do in most of the warmer climates of the United States. You call up the guy, he comes out. What he's, you know, he will, he may need to recharge the coolant in your system, and that's because you probably developed a small leak somewhere, and it's just because of um, physical leaks developing in the air conditioning system. It's not that it's a consumable; it's just physical leaks that we have to cut down on. So technologies, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't keep pace of this, but technologies which can help make more uh, robust and long-lived refrigerant systems that don't leak, um, that's clearly to everybody's benefit. That's amazing. It's amazing to think that one little guy, some like random random guy who got out of high school and, and learned how to do air conditioning, that he's walking around with such a potentially atmospheric-changing weapon almost. Yeah, I, I, you know, in the list of big things we've got to worry about, I'm still going to put carbon dioxide near the top. Really? Yeah, I'm still going to put that near the top. The next one down is methane. You touched on it. It is, uh, you know, the, the top three human-made greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide because it's long-lived and we put so much in the atmosphere. Methane because it's more potent than, than CO2. It's short, but it's shorter-lived. It gets oxidized. It gets turned into carbon dioxide. Uh, and then nitrous oxide, and that's a product of um, agriculture and things like that. Conversion of uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers into N2O. It's um, it's an interesting problem, and it's very difficult to know how we can uh, allocate, uh, or not allocate, the wrong word here, how we can get an understanding of what the major sources of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. It's a very challenging problem. But the two big ones are carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, where is it going into the, um, at the surface? Uh, for methane, it's a bigger question. There's no surface problem because it's only emitted. But recent evidence from my colleagues carrying experiments on in the Arctic is that everybody's thought it's the permafrost that's led to a recent uptake. There's no evidence they, they found yet that the or it's challenging the idea that the Arctic and the boreal region is a new emerging source of methane. It's not due to that. So now the questions are turning around, is this due to changes in natural gas exploitation, you know, from like, Russia? You're talking about the fracking? Well, or is that you something notice different? that it's a, I'm not saying it's just fracking, is the world is far more dependent globally on natural gas exploitation. And um, if it's that, we don't quite, we're not quite sure. The other idea is that you get meth- methane from wetlands, from you know, the old idea of what is swamp gas. Uh, well, it's from wetlands. If th- there's some research that shows that wetlands in the uh, equatorial region uh, could be changing and leading to a, a rise in emissions of methane. Uh, so there's lots of interesting ideas out there, but I'm, I don't think there's any really solid 
con- uh, point as to what the cause of the uptick, up change of increase of methane in the atmosphere has been over the past, I think it's since about 2006, 2007. It's changed its behavior in the atmosphere. It's starting to grow again after several years of leveling off. Doesn't, it's very difficult to understand. That's crazy. Yeah, somebody emailed me the other day about some type of petition against cows because they're saying all the cow farts are basically the, the real uh, methane release. So, yeah, if I remember, you know, many years ago, nobody could really – there was all these thoughts. There's uh, Termites were a serious consideration for a while as a, a major source because there's a lot of termites in the world. Um, livestock and then – Things like rice paddies, agriculture. So I'm going to um, um, the balance of what those, shall we say, natural sources are, is something that uh, in the state of California we have the uh, uh, passage of the Act to AB32, which is to de- to decrease all greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the more challenging ones is what do we say to agriculture? Because there's a lot of dairy farming in California. And what, what value do you place on a cow? And by the way, it's not what comes out the back. It's actually what comes out the front. It's called eruption. It's the burp that does it. Yeah, I was, I was exactly that way too. Caught me by surprise. It's not the rear end. It's the front end. <laughs> but what, you know, what, what, what offset practices can you encourage dairy farmers to take on? Is that a real issue, though? I mean, is it seriously to the point where cow burps can heat the climate? I mean, is, I guess if there's that many cows, that that's possible? Absolutely possible. Uh, dairy farming is thought to be one of the most significant contributors to methane emissions in California because we're such a big dairy state. It's surprising. California and cows are a significant part of the budget. So, and apparently... And I am not a biologist. I am not going into large farm veterinary work anytime soon. Uh, but apparently, it does depend on the kind of feed you provide the cows. And um, so, there is actual underlying research going on to understand how you manage dairy farming that gives credit to certain farming practices as an offset against methane. So I wonder if naturally feeding them grass like they're supposed to eat versus feeding them genetically modified corn. Do do you know the distinction of what happens? No, I I don't actually. But I know it's that kind of discussion that's going on about which of those kind of practices leads to a reduction in methane emissions. And it comes, you know, we we do worse things in feeding animals. I remember reading about during the days when uh, my cow disease was a big issue. Um, it's kind of subsided a little bit, but you know, we we feed livestock all kinds of of re reprocessed dead animal meats and things like that. So I think there are a lot worse things that we feed our animals, our livestock. And I, I, I not think it's just as clear as oh, this one's had grass and this one's had some um, uh, genetically modified um, uh, fodder. I don't think it's that. It's in that landscape, and that discussion is limited to that area. Right. Yeah, well, I know at least grass-fed stuff's better for me. I barely do dairy at all as far as consuming it, but grass-fed, if you've ever had grass-fed cow's milk, oh, man, you talk about a good taste. 
Growing up in England, um, I grew up in a very rural environment. In fact, I, w I lived across from a farm, a dairy farm, where I, I used to help the uh, milking. And none of those cows did anything than go out in the field and eat off grass. And I can tell you that you're absolutely right. Getting a pint of milk where the cream separated out in the bottle, I grew up drinking way too much of that milk. I don't know if you could do too much, man. That stuff's so good for you compared to the United States milk. It's not a comparison. Mm -hmm. Uh, I it was a shock to my uh, taste buds when I had uh, pasteurized and homogenized milk. Yeah. So, do you have family over there still? Oh yes. You need to tell them to ship you some milk, put some dry <laughs> ice in a box, and ship it over. <laughs> yeah. Well, the dairy farming industry has moved everywhere globally. I can tell you, from a rural environment where the dairy industry was focused on very small, you know, sixty cow kind of herds in family family farms where the farmer delivered the milk. He, you know, milked, bottled, delivered. Uh, all that's gone. It's all, if anybody's still in that business, they sell it to the large dairy um, distributors immediately. They come and pick it up. That's crazy, isn't it? It makes you wonder how much of our convenience and how much of our mass production, is it all really worth it? Um, okay, you, on a personal topic, you know, I don't know that we... We live in a society that's clearly uh, the price dominated, right? And, uh, and I've made this point about locally in California, uh, are we pricing water correctly? Uh, if it's such a rare commodity, you know, you feel like you need what we do for electricity. I know that my electricity bill comes tiered so that you get the basic cost down at, uh, for, the, for survival, and then you pay more and more as you go up the uh, more consumption and different tiers of consumption. Uh, I don't think we do. We don't do that in water. Uh, yet it's a very precious commodity. Uh, we certainly have very low costs for fuel, which then has its effect on, in some sense, keeping food prices down that can be shipped to you from, isn't it ironic? You can get large food shipments from anywhere in the world from, you know, because the price is right because we have cheap fuel. That's what it comes down to, nothing more than that. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, how I was thinking about global shipping, because I used to work at UPS, and you see all the planes just one after another just coming in. And I don't know if you've ever checked that website, flighttracker.com. Oh, yes, I have. To see all the flights. Yes. It's, it's incredible. Uh, we, uh, it, I don't know whether the average person listening to us talk has ever done that check, but the amount of cargo moved internationally, it comes down to why in the United States it's cheap to buy uh, products from China. It's not that the labor costs are that desperately different. It's that the shipping costs are that, <laughs> that low. Uh, you probably... It's a, very, it's a facet of the modern era. I mean, it's a facet of the past maybe 10, 20 years. We have the ability and capacity and it's certainly not much cost to ship stuff anywhere, absolutely anywhere. It does seem like local production of goods is the, is the only sustainable way to go, in my opinion, from what I've seen, because I've looked up those cargo ships, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe one cargo ship is equivalent to something like 70,000 cars, the emissions that come out of those cargo ships. Maybe 700,000. I can't remember. I, I've, I, 
I've not looked into what the fuel consumption costs of shipping, uh, um, but they made them bigger and bigger for a reason, uh, because it's more cost effective to move large volumes. Um, uh, but they they've got to use a hideous amount of fuel. Right. I don't know if you can add it to the OCO2's observation thing, but if you put my recommendation, put Evan Brand on there on the on the <laughs> recommendation list and try to try to point the satellite at the cargo ships or just out maybe, you know, I'm sure there's just like there's flight paths, I'm sure there's cargo paths, right, where ships go from China to yeah. the United States. Capture yep. that path and measure that path and see if it's higher than the rest of the ocean. So there's a, a an interesting challenge scientifically that I'll get on just how you um, so an understanding of human use of fossil fuels is based on what we call an, a, a bottom-up inventory process where you count how many uh, barrels of uh, oil tons of coal cubic meters cubic feet of gas are used and shipped and you know not surprisingly because there's money involved Collectively, we keep a pretty excuse me a reasonable track of this, so we kind of know that number and have known that number for the past hundred odd years reasonably well. It's one of the primary pieces of information you have about why the cause of CO two increasing in the atmosphere. But what's very difficult when you get down to saying who's who's doing what is what we I think the term is bunker fuels. It's how do you account for uh, an airplane taking off and moving and crossing into a new nation, do you say that the fuel used in your accounting system goes to the departure nation or the arrival nation? So the accounting systems tend to have a fuzzy edge around those bunker fuels, whether a ship is accounted as consuming so many barrels of oil in leaving China or arriving in the United States. So the way where you tackle this sometimes um, is you have to have these separate accounting procedures for just that area. But scientifically, if you want to know what's going on, which is back to, back to your point, is you can go down to the port. If you go to the port, you see all kinds of the confluence of trucks coming in to collect the cargo and redistribute and the effects of the fleets coming in, uh, bringing the cargo to port. And you can measure elevated carbon dioxide levels in the port region itself. And it's got, you know, the Port Authority of Los Angeles and Long Beach uh, have quite a difficult time because the air quality in the port region is all absolutely dreadful. I'm sure. You should almost be on a freaking oxygen mask if you're working out there, right? <laughs> it's uh, air quality in Los Angeles. It's been the poster child of bad air quality for decades, but... Uh, more efficient fuel consumption, etc. It's not that bad. I'm not sure we need to take it quite to the level of where an oxygen mask, but it's it's. I know it's not that healthy still. Right. I got to, I got two questions. I know I got to let you go soon. Uh, as far as the United States, I always hear about really clean air and like good sources of oxygen up near the you know Seattle, Washington, BC, all that area up there on kind of the northwest of the United States. Is there that big of a variance in oxygen levels across the United States, like depending on where you're at? No, I don't think there is. Uh, I think what people are reflecting on are there are less pollutants. 
and there are different there are different processes at play here. So in the what I, I I'm going to guess here, but I would think what's happening in the northwest is because of the uh, colder temperatures, cooler temperatures, let's say, uh, precipitation because it has a role in literally washing out pollutants. Uh, play a big role in keeping things down like particulates in the air and also uh, washing out uh, trace gases, pollutant gases as well. In other areas, we're actually more susceptible. So hotter temperatures stimulate the photochemistry. Uh, Still conditions may trap air in a bubble around the city. That happens in Los Angeles. Uh, You can get... uh, Lots of factors which lead to cleaner air being perceived in, a, in an area. It doesn't mean that you're not polluting as much, but it's not the oxygen levels have gone down. It's just that the oxygen, you, you, I think people are remarking on all the other pollutants in the air. Uh, so generally speaking, is the air, I guess, cleaner or less polluted in the wintertime? Because for me, it always seems like I can breathe better in the winter. It may just be cooler air. Uh, typically, that's, that's actually correct. It's because you don't have as much sunlight. Uh, you don't have uh, because you need temperature and sunlight will stimulate a lot of the smog, basic smog reactions. So you will get ten, tend to have cleaner air days in the winter than during the summer. And um, uh, so, and and that's why other places in Los Angeles you have this. We're ringed by mountains. We've got the San Gabriel's at my back window. And, you, you know, we're pretty much uh, 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 the onshore move, uh, air doesn't get out of the basin until late in the afternoon. So you'll see, you, I've been up in the mountains, by the way, and as the air temperature and the day moves on, you can suddenly smell the point in the afternoon where the boundary layer has moved up, the air's expanded, the onshore flow's got to the point of blowing the smog into the mountains. I can smell the difference when you do, on those days when I've been in the mountains. You notice it immediately. So the air in Los Angeles, you're saying, is cleaner in the afternoon because that's when the, the temperature rises and causes the breeze? It, well, it just it expands. The, the air expands as it heats up, and it starts to flow out of the basin when it goes over the mountains. So in actual fact, that's, it's not cleaner. You can just tell the difference when you're in the mountains itself. When that pocket of air rises and hits your elevation, you can smell the difference. Oh, goodness. What's it smell like? Just exhaust? Like a sharper. Just very sharp. You can just tell it, you know, in your, in your, in your nose, your olfactory senses feel like it's, it's got a sharper smell. Really? It's like every, as a kid, I remember my great-grandmother said, you know, there's all this thing about going to the ocean and having the ocean breeze and smelling the ozone. Well, ozone has that distinct smell to it. it you can, you can sense, most people will sense it as being a very sharp smell. Interesting. But it is pollution that you're smelling too. Oh, absolutely. It is pollution without doubt. It is unhealthy. It is unhealthy. Wow. Because, see, I, I read you know, on the climate report about how – you hear more people are going to be having asthma and breathing difficulties and stuff like that. So that's just due to the increased temperature kind of acting as a magnifier to these pollutants. That's right. As uh, The chemical smog is driven by temperature and, uh, and sunlight. So summer hot temperatures are going to make it worse. In fact, one of the 
study somebody did about um, climate impacts on Southern California is that the rising summer temperatures would lead to uh, offset anything. You can have this competing trend. You can reduce your uh, emissions of pollutants, but if the temperatures are going up and you, you, you could actually have a comp- an exacerbating effect that offsets anything you do about reducing your pollution, your pollutants. Um, but the, the, I'm just going to throw out, it's not just gases in the atmosphere, it's tiny particles, it's the particulates. Um, air, health and air, air quality and the impact on health in uh, the developing world, in Brazil, for example, uh, they have extraordinarily unclean air because they've, they've had a rise in particulates. And the particulates cause asthma and cause uh, and, and other really deleterious effects on your health. It's really bad for you. So it's not just the gas and the temperatures, but also as a result of combustion processes in the development, you know, you put more cars on the street, you're putting more particulates in the air. Makes sense. Yeah, I have plenty of HEPA air filters around my house, and I notice a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is we were talking about the airplanes and the whole system, and you think about that many planes flying over every day, and people argue that some planes are spraying things out and creating these sort of chemtrails. Now, we don't have to go into that if you don't want to, but... No. <laughs> but all right, but now, now here is the question, though. How much is air traffic affecting the OCO2's ability to see because there are certain times where I'll look. I don't know if it's atmospheric conditions changing to where a plane leaves a trail. Some planes leave a trail, some don't. Some of them leave a trail that turns into like a huge fluffy cloud. How much of a role is that playing in the actual visibility of the of the ground? Um, I've ne- I've looked at a lot of satellite data and imagery. And I've never seen obvious contrail impacts in that imagery. And uh, the, you may be able to get specific examples, but they're not sustained features. There aren't, uh, you know, not every day you can go to North American imagery and say, aha, it's that time of day already. Look at LAX creating with all the planes coming in uh, or leaving, sorry. Um, I. So it doesn't really impact us on OCO2, not that we're terribly concerned about it. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, you're talking about a very small contrail. And the other part of this is we're looking over something which is spatially much larger. And you're looking for light that's hit the ground and come back again. And even though a con, you know, that, that plume of, uh, uh, of water vapor, that cloud, is very reflective, looks white and fluffy, and it can reflect sunlight. Uh, its overall impact is quite small. Yeah, I was curious because it's – do you know what what actually happens to where some days it seems like every plane creates a big fluffy cloud and then some days the planes go by and there's nothing Meteorology. It's meteorology. It's just the simple local temperature conditions and humidity conditions. Yeah, because I've talked to meteorologists and they just deny that – planes even leave any sort of trail i'm not acting like it's like a conspiracy but to them but they act like i'm just like some crazy guy when i ask about it but it's like how come some days the whole sky gets hazed out and then other days there's nothing so i i know that uh i once tried to take this picture while i was visiting my mother in england she lives about 
30 miles maybe from Manchester Airport in the north of England. And on certain evenings, you can see the contrails of all the aircraft coming in and out of Manchester Airport. On other evenings, you won't see a thing. So you, 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 I, I don't, you're not wrong in that observation. And I've just my only uh, explanation is that those those differences must be due, due to local changes in temperature and humidity. Yeah. Just the condensation ability of the water vapor. You're burning a lot of hydrocarbons, and you're producing a lot of water when you burn those hydrocarbons. And it's just the conden- condensation and then re-evaporation of that water as it comes out of the exhaust. Right. All right. Well, hey, it's been great talking to you, Michael. It really has. Oh, it's had a lot of fun, Evan. It's, it was broad-ranging. <laughs> that, that's the way every show is, man. That's where the gold nuggets come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it was a real pleasure, Evan. I'm, 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 I was delighted. It was a great conversation. Awesome. Well, tell people what you think they should know. I don't know if there's any key takeaway, something you feel like you haven't said yet, you need to say, etc. Um, we didn't touch on some of the other wonderful things we're doing. Uh, I'd love to either myself or point you to people. One of the th- great accidental things we discovered in this measurement approach we have is that we can detect plants fluorescing when they're in the midst of growth in photosynthesis from space. It's the most remarkable discovery, and I didn't even get to talk to you about that. Uh, If you want to know when a plant's growing, i.e. it's active in photosynthesis, a small amount of the energy it takes from sunlight, a little bit of it, leaks back to space as another photon. We can measure those photons, and it tells you when the plant's growing. So uh, there's a whole story in the carbon cycle about the magic of looking at plants grow from space. Incredible. So we can see if the Amazon's actually regrowing like they say, you're saying. Absolutely. You've got it spot on. You can actually tell uh, when crops in their midst of growth, when plants are really growing. And bear in mind, they need sunlight. But the, the trick is a plant can look green and be growing uh, or it can stop growing and still look green. But a plant will not emit a photon if it stopped growing. So there are times when it's feeling a bit of stress from not having enough water. It will stop, shut everything down because there isn't enough water. And we can tell that because it will not fluoresce and emit a photon in the midst of photosynthesis. Incredible. So you could almost tell when rain happened, even if you didn't see the rain happen. Because after a big rain, you feel everything just come to life. That's exactly right. So if it's... One of the big uh, uncertainties is you know how green things are and you know when they die and turn brown. Yeah, they're not growing then. But if you want to know how much they're growing and when and their response to these stresses, looking from space at the photosynthesis fluorescence signal is really powerful. That's great. Well, we'll have to get into that next time then. Let's keep in touch. Uh, We'll do, Evan. Cheers. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. I want to thank you for exploring new territory with me. That's some of the main reviews that I see on iTunes lately is that I'm covering topics that no one else is. And I don't really do it intentionally. It's just kind of where my heart leads me. I'm interested in all of these things. We're all on this planet together. So the health of our atmosphere, like we discussed today, the health of our water systems, the health of our soil, the health of us as individuals, it all counts. So, you know, I really appreciate you being open to listening to these new subjects and listening in on these cool conversations. There's a lot of really interesting people out there doing really good work. So it's important to reshape 
when you get discouraged to reshape your perspective on health and society. And like we talked about last week, we could be really doom and gloom about things or we can kind of spin it to where we can focus on what we're going to do because life's going to keep going forward and things are going to keep changing. But it's up to us whether we want to jump on the river of life and start flowing with the stream or if we want to act like a dam and just act like a big tree log and we're just going to try to keep holding up the flow of everything. It's it's not going to happen. Eventually the tree's going to break or the dam's going to keep getting higher and higher and higher until there's catastrophic flooding when it finally does break. So if you can jump on the flow of the, the river of life now and, and start to get encouraged by this show and just in your day-to-day life on your daily actions, you know, you have the power to, to shut down the negative thoughts that pop up and the maybe the feelings of overwhelm or stress or anything like that. I, I know a lot of people are are in need of encouragement in these times, you know, definitely my family and myself and a lot of people, we need encouragement and uh, I'm here to provide that for you. So thanks for being part of this tribe for the last coming up on two years. I, I really appreciate you all. It's been a pleasure to be able to have these conversations and have you be part of the show listening in. So If you have questions for the show and you don't want to send a voice message through notjustpaleo.com, then you can just email me, notjustpaleo at gmail.com. Just hit me up that way. If you want to send a long-winded answer question, that's fine. If you want to send a short question, that's cool too. Just reaching out for help is, is the most important step towards achieving anything it's really hard you hear the offer on the table and it's really hard to execute sometimes like you get the offer to go out with your friends sometimes it's easier to just be like ah and you just kind of brush things off but eventually you can't brush things off eventually you got to face them and confront them and ask for help so not just paleo at gmail send in your questions we'll be doing a Q&A episode pretty soon I'll probably just do it by myself and see how the flow of it goes I'm still compiling your all's questions so keep them coming and Like I said, as I'm enrolled into the nutritional therapy program, I'm going to be hopefully getting Nora back on the show soon. Maybe we can talk about the program and how it's helped her and things like that. And then as my schooling progresses, I'm going to be sort of bringing this knowledge and education in a fun way back to the show. I've always wanted to do that, switch it from a little bit less conversation and a little bit more fun. I wanted to start singing that Elvis song, but anyway... Thanks for tuning in, and I'd love to see your review on iTunes. I know I gave you too many calls to action there, but at least take one step that I've mentioned. I'll talk to you next week. Take care of yourself. Bye. All through my days at school, I often think of you, my darling baby boo. You're always in my head That's why I can't wait to go to bed To close my eyes and visualize You right by my